Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. We're back once again with Chasing Frets, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe Gore. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great. I'm having a blast talking with you and Gretchen this week. This is a, a conversation that's interesting in so many ways. Yeah, this was, uh, I got to say, one of my one of my favorite weeks of podcasts uh, that I've done so far uh, with Gretchen. And today's topic is going to be about kind of all about concept albums. Her last record, uh, 2016, was Abandon All Hope, and it was based around Dante's Inferno. And she kind of tells the story about how it all came together and a little behind the scenes about what she was thinking and, and how she kind of rescued herself from just staring at a blank page when it comes to composition. Yeah, there's that's that, that part of it is interesting too. I mean, she's definitely a workhorse sort of player, you know, not the type who waits for inspiration to strike, but is <laughs> working on it, you know, really hard in a very focused way. So again, simply listening to her, procedures for uh, practicing and creating and getting better are pretty illuminating in themselves. But also, it's an interesting record because it's a, I mean, it's a virtuosic guitar record for sure. You know, Gretchen is is most definitely a shredder. But uh, by virtue of her background in classical music, she brings a lot of, shall we say, non-rock notions about uh, musical structure, assembling a larger piece of work. And this is a long album about a very complex piece of literature. It's all instrumental, so it's just instrumental depictions of the themes, uh, you know, from the from the great poem. But um, it's more than just you know a dozen jams stuck back to back like a lot of uh, you know shred albums might be. It's got a very ambitious structure, you know, huge amount of change of color and texture over the course of the record, uh, recurring themes. Um, some classical musical techniques that rarely get used in in even the most advanced prog rock, and uh, that side of it is really fascinating as well. How she how she tackled a big uh, topic and she tackled it in a big fashion. Yeah, and not to spoil anything, but the whole breakdown uh, and tangent we go on about sonata form and shred guitar will definitely be worth the time. And I'm sure after this episode, shredders everywhere will be tackling Sonata form. Not like, you know, she's not pretentious about this stuff. It's just, it's just, she, you know, puts her influences together in a, in a, in a really cool and unique way. Mm-hmm. So we're looking forward to having you check, uh, our, our final episode here with Gretchen. Uh, as always check us out at, at premierguitar.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can drop and, uh, review or rate us or reach out to us at chasing frets at premierguitar.com. And uh, we'll be back next week. But first, our final episode with Gretchen Mann.
everybody. Welcome back once again. We're going to wrap up our week with Gretchen Men here. I'm here with Gretchen and Joe Gorgon. Thanks for having me. You guys have been so much fun to chat with. Oh, you're a great interview, Gretchen. We've been having a blast too. Yeah. And so today we're going to talk about uh, concept albums and kind of the logistics and influences that kind of go into to one of these. Mm. Yeah, it's your your most recent record. It's a couple of years old now, Gretchen, is uh, based on Dante's Inferno. And it's a very large format through compute, through composed work for a rock band plus chamber ensemble and uh, lots of classical violin, lots of soprano. But it's not a virtuoso guitar record in the sense of, oh, here's one of my jams, here's another jam, oh, we got 12 jams, let's make a record. Um, mm. There's you know through lines and connecting thoughts all the way through. And I think some of these uh, qualities apply to your work in progress right now, which we'd also love to hear about. Mm. So maybe talk a little bit about building a larger piece, more mm. ambitious structures, more ambitious mm-hmm. ideas as a centerpiece for an album. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you. Um, I, I think it, it all stems from what I find most interesting and compelling to listen to. With maybe rare Shakespearean examples in general, I find dialogue more compelling than monologue. And same thing with music. doesn't mean that there aren't some fantastic and transcendentally beautiful pieces that, are, that really showcase the guitar. But in terms of having an album feel like, like a a satisfying piece of work, it isn't to me just about having one soloist the whole time, but having there be conversations, having different timbres and textures juxtaposed against one another. That is what draws me in. So before even determining that Dante was going to be a subject, that was something that I, that was my takeaway from doing my first album that had some of that, but, but I knew that was the direction I wanted to go. And Furthermore, I knew that I really liked the idea of trying to fuse outside artistic influences with instrumental music. Uh, By definition, instrumental music is the most abstract of art forms. And that on one hand leaves it open to the most imagination and yet requires the greatest amount of engagement on the part of the listener. So it really just depends on what do you like? Do you like to have to engage that much or do you want a story to be told to you in more concrete of terms? For me, an instrumental concept album can bring the best of both worlds. You can listen to it as pure music without considering the concept, yet if the concept can guide and enhance and somehow bring greater relevance to the musical expression, then it just makes the art bigger and deeper. So I knew I wanted to do something like that. Um, I was this close to both um, an English and music double major, but then ended up just um, taking a lot of kind of literature courses. And I'm from a family of writers, like everybody in my family is a writer. So um, I I grew up reading a lot and I still like to read a lot. Um, And I had started thinking about like, what, what could I do to really maybe fuse those two things. And right at that time, Michael Melinda from Guitar Player Magazine at the time had approached me saying like, hey, I heard something on your first album. I want to chat about a possible collaboration. And I thought he was going to say what everybody my whole career has said. is like, why don't you sing? And why don't you play more popular 
appealing music. So I was ready to go in with sort of an open mind, but all of my reasons why that wasn't what I was interested in, ready to go. But rather than that, he totally surprised me by slapping down this piece of paper that said, you know, collaboration concept, Michael Melinda, Gretchen Men, Dante's Inferno, Dante's Inferno, a journey in 11 different musical moods. And I was like, yes, <laughs> done. Like, <laughs> <Go Mike. laughs> I was like, it was actually kind of like, like a, a rare goosebumps moment where you just know what you're going to do with the next few years of your life. And so I, I had studied composition. I had been studying composition and I knew that in order to do what I imagined this album needed to be properly, I was going to have to take that to another level. So I dove in deeper. I um, started studying orchestration. I started listening to concept albums that I thought were really effective and everything from Amused to Death, Roger Waters, you know, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. But then a lot that I was actually listening to were things like The Rite of Spring, Stravinsky, um, things that were like 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 ballets. Um, with there's yeah. a li- I hear a little Stravinsky in the second piece on uh, a little bit of Rite of Spring in the second piece on. Abandoned. Oh, really? Well, good. That's wonderful. am I imagining that? No, no. But actually, the one that that I I most directly. Um, uh, or I should say most consciously was, was trying to channel my inner Stravinsky was, um, uh, it's so funny. I had working titles for these and now I, um, now I have to remember what the title actually was. Hold on. Uh, a bloodshed. Um, that's the one that's, uh, that I was, you know, like I said, more consciously doing that, but, um, but yeah, I did study a lot of the Stravinsky ballets. Also, you mentioned in an earlier earlier interview this week, you know, that you have a particular affinity for 19th century romanticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, I mean, that's, that's where you really find the notion of composers trying to create fusions between mm-hmm. different media or writing uh, an instrument, instrumental piece that represents an epic poem or a play even if there's no words spoken. Mm-hmm. And that's the same. I mean, that's a, I hear a similar spirit in your Dante piece. Oh, well, thank you. That, I mean, what was so, so educational about doing that is I had never written music that way. I, I had written music based on something that I found interesting or beautiful or something I kind of stumbled across on the guitar, but I had never sat down with a list um, of different moods that I needed to evoke musically and had that be the beginning of the composition. Um, pieces like the one you mentioned, Limbo, um, was, it was a bit of a puzzle to figure out how to write a piece that evoked the sense of limbo based on, you know, if, if Western tonality can be reduced to tension and resolve, how, how do you stay in limbo while still writing a complete sounding piece of music if there's no resolve, right? A, lo- a lot of kind of fake resolutions or incomplete or unsatisfying resolutions. But that was, so that's a perfect example of why a concept and trying to stay true to being in service of the concept pushed me creatively, which is why I, I will evangelize 
writing to a concept for anybody who's ever who's curious to expand what they could do creatively. Because I, I would venture to say that you you can do things you never imagined you would do if you have to do it to serve a concept. Now, I believe earlier this week you mentioned you you started writing these away from your guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's kind of when you do that and you're when you do, you don't have the familiar uh, shapes and patterns mm-hmm. under your hands. What's uh, what's kind of your process? I know you showed us like a little notebook you had there a little mm-hmm. bit ago. Are you just like sketching out melodies from your head on paper and then figuring them out later, or do you sit at a piano maybe? Or um, a lot of different ways. Sometimes a little bit at the piano. Uh, sometimes. <coughs> um, what, what I did with this one is even before I wrote a single note, I would write down uh, keys. Uh, time signatures, ensembles, and then adjectives. So I might know that I want to begin the 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 whole album like in one key and have it go to another key throughout the series of the album. I I, I like albums to have a variety of keys. As guitar players, it's very easy for us to play in four keys, you know? Um, and I don't think there's any reason we should avoid some of the, just the tonal possibilities that happen by going to a different key. Flat keys rule. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and what it can mean if you're, if you're creating something that's not meant to be heard just as a single track, but what it means with the borders of the tracks on either side of it, what does it mean to have a key that's, that say, like say you end, say one piece ends in the key of D and then you start one in the key of G. Well, that's going to have sort of a sense within, between the tracks of tension and resolve because you're going from a, a dominant D to say it's, you know, tonic G, right? On the other hand, if you were to go fr- from D to like C sharp, that's going to have a very different um, juxtaposition in the sense of like, wow, from this track, we're really in a different universe with this track. So I planned, I tried to plan that out with, with the tracks and with the order to, to, to have there be that variety and that sense of, of journey. So even before I sat down back to your question, I'm sorry, I'm on a tangent is, um, I tried to figure out what the piece should sound like in a bigger, more, um, textural and conceptual sense. And then from there, you have your roadmap. It doesn't mean I didn't change my plan ever, but if I knew that I was going to sit down and write this piece in this key in this time signature with these instruments, deliberately leaving this instrument out or this instrument or featuring this instrument, almost every piece I tried to have feature one of the instruments. Um, and And it sounds like that roadmap, even just basically mapping out keys and different things you want to highlight mm-hmm. saved you from just staring at a blank page the whole time. Oh yeah. Like it's a place to start. It's not set in stone. Yeah. I just need to get started and mm-hmm. figure it out later. Yeah. Well, I mean, and if you think about it, I think um, most of us, if we imagine for a moment that we don't have to, that we're not playing an instrument and we don't actually have the onus of writing something down. If you were to close your eyes and say, what might music sound like that evo- evoked a sense of deep weight and grief. What might that sound like? You can probably hear something. 
your your brain will start coming up with something. Now it might be something that's a total ripoff. Of, I was going to say, you know, say, like Mozart's Requiem. But I was going to say, thanks yeah. to film scores, we're all going to think the same. You know, it's like what sounds aggressive and martial, Carmina Burana. What sounds right. what sounds yeah. you know so like all the tragedy in the world? Oh, Barbara Dodge over strings. Right, <laughs> right exactly. We've become exactly. very homogenized, so, and we pro- a lot of us would probably have very yes. similar answers to those questions. Right, for exactly, or worse. exactly. And even that isn't necessarily a bad thing because in some cases there was something that I kind of couldn't shake. You know, I couldn't shake certain, maybe I shouldn't say what they are because then people will forever not be able to separate it. And if I haven't been called out on it yet, I kind of don't want (laughs) to invite it. But let's just say there were a couple of places where I couldn't shake a particular thing. And yet not having a perfect memory is sometimes a blessing, you know? So when you don't go back to that piece that you remembered, you know, I think Joe, maybe you know some of these pieces too well, but, <laughs> but when, when, when you think about that from kind of loosely and think, okay, what does that sound like? Maybe not the exact melody, maybe not the notes, but what is the feeling of this? And then you sit down to actually write now, whether it's on staff paper, whether it's on your guitar, whether it's on, I, I did a lot of writing in Sibelius, which is like a scoring program. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have the skills of audiation that composers like Mozart did where I can just like fully flesh out like perfect counterpoint with multiple instruments, you know, just with my inner ear. I'm, I'm working on it. It is uh, a goal of mine to get better at it. But, um, but even if like melodies and general harmonies and textures might be something I can come up with to a reasonable degree of accuracy away from the instrument when it really comes down to the nitty gritty. Like I need to be able to hear it in real time and Sibelius is better than my piano skills. So then, then when it really came down to putting notes on the page, you have so much already in your mind of how it must go that it almost is like just, I don't want to say connecting the dots, but it's almost like so much of it is already clear how it needs to be. Uh, formal structures is another thing that I feel like a lot of uh, guitar players might enjoy exploring more, you know. Um, For example? Anybody who writes instrumental music and has never written in sonata form, like you are doing yourself a disservice. Like it's not, sonata form isn't something said to make you feel, I don't know, it's not not supposed to sound snooty or pretentious it's a wonderful wonderful outline for for writing it's the for me it's like the perfect goldilocks zone of just enough uh complexity with structure and lots of room for flexibility and creativity that it's like there's a reason that composers loved writing in this form so ubiquitously for so many years. I heard, I heard I, um, there was a famous musicologist Charles Rosen who once said uh Sonata isn't a form; it's a procedure. It's um, yeah, exactly. For you know, for the for the non-classical music dorks, sonata is as simple as three parts. You introduce your ideas, you come back and mix them up and twist them around and bend them in various ways and make variations, and then you come back to your original ideas after having been through the experience of the experimentation. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's, exactly. it's a pretty loose concept, but. Yeah, it's a large scale ABA. And then if you wanted to get kind of down to some of the nitty gritty part, part of what I like about it, like if you wanted 
just that much and that made you write something great, fantastic. Um, so that first section, like you said, Joe, like we've got our exposition, which is what it's called. And generally you have a main key that with our main theme that then has a modulation through a modulating bridge to the key of either generally the dominant if you're in the major or the relative major if you're in minor. And then it's a contrasting theme. And then generally that whole section repeats before the two themes then fragment, you know, modulate and interact in a development section that Mozart called La Fantasia. So you can just kind of do whatever you want. And then you go back to a recapitulation section where both themes are then heard in the tonic key. So there's sort of the sense that they've been transformed and now these two contrasting keys become one and everybody's happy. Um, but the- I feel like I've heard some like super heady fish jams that have followed. <laughs> <laughs> Sonotiform jam. That sounds so Not great. dead jams though, because by the time they get back to the end, they forgot where they started. No. Yeah. <laughs> But the point is, is that it's like you don't you can go as deep as you want on some some of these formal structures. The way I see it is, these are just tools to spark creativity. They're not supposed to be rules to straightjacket you into some sort of way of writing. It's more like, do, do these help you develop an idea or a concept? Um, do they help you grow? And so for me, um, kind of making friends with them, some of these formal structures was really really helpful. Just knowing where you're going to go with the piece. Gosh, isn't that like half the battle at least? <laughs> uh, and that, uh, you you mentioned in, you mentioned in a very important word in passing, and it, it stuck out because it's something you generally don't encounter in instrumental rock or even in progressive rock very much, which is you write counterpoint. Yeah, you, uh, meaning uh, uh, you know, there's <laughs> you 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 establish a musical idea, then you write a secondary part that works against it. I I hear examples mm-hmm. of imitative counterpoint on your Dante record, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you know theme comes in on one instrument, then it gets picked up by another instrument, while the first mm-hmm. instrument develops it off in some other direction, and that's not a thing I hear very much in complex, uh, mm-hmm. you know, rock or neoclassical or or various forms of prog, you know, people, you know, work with riffs and they work with very ambitious time signatures, but so often it's just everybody in the ensemble, you know, reiterating the 11-8 pattern, but they're not, Mm. but the voices aren't really moving independently and playing off each other. That's really more of a classical music impulse. And you, you integrate those sort of textures into your work and it, hearing that on an electric guitar album, um, stands out because you don't hear that very much. You have like the most rewarding ears, I got to say. Um, no, I'm, uh, thank you. Um, some people do crossword puzzles. Some people do Sudoku. And I like, you know, messing around with counterpoint. At the end of the day, rather than just having a bunch of squares filled out with numbers or letters, you actually have something that's like music too, right? Um, I, I know counterpoint gets a really bad rap for people who've studied it a little bit. Um, because they see it as just a series of restrictions where is I think a lot of times theory gets a bad rap because rather than seeing it is that music was written and then people after the fact are like, why does that sound so cool? You know, it isn't like Bach had a list of things. Oh, I can't do that. I can't. It's, it's that people with great experience and great tastes um, found themselves falling into certain conventions that was most effective to their ear. And presumably Bach has a better ear than most of us. And so we sit there and we go, what, how does Bach sound so cool? So we analyze it after the fact. And so um, writing with restrictions 
paradoxically can be very freeing. And especially when you see that the reward can be so great, because I do think that we all suffer in any art form from the terror of the blank page. And so if you come up with, oh my gosh, hallelujah, I've, I've come up with a melody. What do I do with this melody so it doesn't sound stupid? You know, because context is everything, right? How do I not make it sound saccharine or predictable or whatever? To have then the ability to say, let me see what happens if I write a counterpoint line, maybe something very simple, but that that juxtaposes against it in a way that has independence, but then it gives, puts this other line in, an, in a different light or in a new context, it can be so rewarding. And so counterpoint can be rather addictive, but I would wager it's a pretty healthy addiction. It's, it's, did you have, was, was part of your <laughs> classical training, did you ever have the ordeal of um, writing counterpoint with nothing but a pencil and a piece of paper? Like you can't, can't oh, use yes. the piano, can't use the guitar, just... Oh yeah, I've gone through I've gone through uh, the Fuchs counterpoint. I've got well, you won't be able to hear it on that, but you see this that that shelf. She's, oh, she's pointing at a big a bookshelf that, that looks suspiciously full of music books. That's that's my counterpoint and harmony. These are scores and other texts, except for these two over here. So um, no, <laughs> I I work on that, and there's also great stuff um, on YouTube now which is like a, a, a YouTuber named um, and professor named Alan Belkin has a wonderful free series on just like an introduction to counterpoint. It's really clearly uh, outlined. It doesn't have some of the same level. It's more sort of a, at least what I've gone through, the more, more modern counterpoint. 16th century counterpoint is very dogmatic. And I don't know if it's as relevant to a lot of tonal music. I shouldn't say it's not that it's relevant. There are certain... Uh, guidelines that probably have loosened up over time, especially relative to say 18th century and modern tonal counterpoint. Nevertheless, there's still something great about studying it. And for anybody who doesn't want to go and get old counterpoint textbooks, um, Alan Belkin's YouTube channel is a great place to start. And it's free. Have, have you ever explored film scoring? Because it seems like your your music would really, you know, you, we had this 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 text Dante Inferno to kind of work from it seemed like given a a movie of some sort your music would really kind of lend itself to it. I would love to. I just don't even know like how does one start that? Like who do I call and say I'm ready to start from scoring films? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, um, I, I would love to. I mean, I, I I would love to do more and more composition. That's that that brings me a certain type of joy and fascination that I have a hard time finding anywhere else. All right. So to wrap up this episode in this week, Gretchen, uh, again, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You, you mentioned amused to death, uh, uh, as far as one of your favorite like concept albums, are there a couple more that you can point people to if they're not, uh, so familiar with the idea of, of what a concept album could be? Sure. Um, well, I also mentioned dark side of the moon. I feel like you got to you got to do that yeah. one. Um, I'm, I'm partial to the wall. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. exactly. And the wall. Pink Floyd. Yeah, anything Pink Floyd. Um, Stephen Wilson currently is a modern guy doing uh, amazing stuff. Hand Cannot Erase is a, a, a great album. Uh, actually, Sarah Kirkland Snyder, who is um, married to Steve Mackey, who is a composer that um, both Joe and I are working on a project with right now. Um, she has a, an a, some amazing stuff and right now uh unremembered is beautiful i mean it, it's it's a composed work um but also i think people who 
who likes, say, somebody like Kate Bush would would really enjoy it as well. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, is it a guitar, is it a guitar class- centric piece? It is not. It is not. So, um, oh, oh yeah, if we want to get something guitar centric, gosh, so much of what I listen to isn't guitar centric. Maybe that's why I don't really write that much guitar centric music. But you know what? I think it would actually benefit more guitar players to listen to other stuff than guitar. I mean, it's so easy to kind of get into this almost incestuous type of inspiration. Like, I feel like so many great players are always saying, listen to jazz, listen to horn players, you know. I'll say go listen to Ravel, listen to Debussy, listen to Lily Boulanger and, um, and Stravinsky. There's just so much yeah. great music out there. I mean, and for anybody who thinks they're super metal, go listen to the Rite of Spring and tell me if that isn't early metal. It's got, it's got the parallel <laughs> fifths for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and some serious, like, you know, genting, Dance of the Adolescents. <laughs> my God. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Gretchen, for spending this time and this week with us. Uh, make sure to go check out Gretchen's uh, latest record, Abandon All Hope, that we've been discussing at length today and through the other episodes. And we'll be back next week. Thank you so much, you guys. It's been such a pleasure. Mm-hmm.